QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Michelle. Michelle is a master's student at QUT researching domestic violence with a specific focus on understanding the family law court responses to child abuse. Her story is one of unique experiences and challenges as she started her research while she was incarcerated. On this episode, Jodie and Michelle talk about her research, the state of domestic violence inquiry more generally, and the challenges and wins that come with studying in prison. I'll also include a content warning here. This episode contains discussion of domestic and family violence and the ways that the criminal justice system sometimes fails people who have experienced abuse. There are no graphic stories, it's mostly to provide context for understanding Michelle's work, but just be aware that these things can be hard or frustrating to hear. Without any further ado, Michelle. Welcome to How to Academia. Who are you? Who am I? So my name's Michelle and I was thinking about this question because I was listening to your other podcasts and um, I used to think I knew who I was until life threw a few different things at me and now I feel like I'm, if I want to say who I am, I'm evolving. So, yeah, so I'm a mum. I don't like to really like label you know like mum or or daughter or whatever but in a, the generic you know thought of who I am I'm a mum of two girls I'm studying I'm a mature age student trying to finish my HDR master's and um, just trying to become a better person. So tell me about your master's work. So I'm doing you're my supervisor and <laughs> what <laughs> and um yeah, I'm trying to, I'm actually doing um, how the family law courts manage family violence and child sexual abuse cases and see what actually does inform their decision making. From the last five years, I've been looking at that and um, basically seeing that there's a lot of gender biases, unfortunately. Priorities are on the parents rather than children. Lots of children are, unfortunately, falling through the cracks and not being supported or protected at all. So that's what I'm studying. So when you kind of came back to studying and you came back to studying with QUT, that happened in a really interesting way. Can you tell us about that? Yes. I was actually incarcerated. So I started, I knew I was in a domestic violent relationship and there was an incident between my ex-husband and myself and it went to a jury and the jury believed my ex-husband over my daughter and I. So I was convicted of charges and I was um, sentenced to five and a half years jail to do three and a half and um, two years on parole. So I'm currently still on parole 
and I when I was it was a very big shock to be incarcerated so I was in shock but at the same time once I got over the shock I thought I need to use my time wisely so I wanted to learn more about domestic violence and how things like this could happen so I got my one of my girlfriends to ring around and see what courses were available and who would work with somebody who's incarcerated and I and she spoke to QUT and they were absolutely opening all the doors. So it was wonderful. So I started a grad cert in DV, which I did incarcerated. And then I asked you if I could continue with a master's, which you said yes. So that's how it all came about. And, and it was amazing because it actually kept me focused and not you don't get lost in your head thinking about what's happened, what's happened, what's happened, and stress about the outside world and so forth. So it did help me immensely. What was it like doing a grad cert in domestic violence in those circumstances? Um, it was one of the best things I've ever done because most of the women, when I talked to the women that were incarcerated, have a DV background and a lot of the information that's coming through is no-brainers to everyone incarcerated, but it just seems like it's not getting through to the decision makers. So that gave me a hunger to learn more and more and what's the block? What's, mm. why are these myths not getting through and so forth and the statistics and whatnot. But it was really, on a practical side, it was really difficult because in, in, when you're, in, you're incarcerated, there's really, they're really short staff, so they try and lock you in a lot um, so you can't get to education. So it was stressful. I want to talk to you more about the practicalities, but let's go back and talk about What's it like having conversations about domestic violence with women who are incarcerated and come from domestically violent backgrounds? It's really sad because everybody can relate to each other. And like, for example, I was talking to some Aboriginal women and it's common that they, for example, if they've been assaulted, they get pressure from their families to take the charge so the partner doesn't go to jail. So there's a lot of women saying I'm guilty when they're not. So uh, to me, I can't see how I, I, it, it blows me away how that could even happen, you know, when we know all the facts behind domestic violence and how it's gender-based and whatnot. So talking about it, you, you, you kind of feel like there's a kinship there um, with the women, but also it's frustrating because you think how, why are we satisfied with just letting people stand up and take being incarcerated for no reason and yeah and their children and whatnot having to suffer through that is there a lot of interest in studying amongst prisoners there is and that's one thing that in prison everybody's very aware of keeping a level playing field and if someone is is seen to be getting something that someone else isn't that can cause big um chaos basically so it's all very much encouraged, but then they don't, the staff don't have the time, the understaff, they don't have the time to actually help or facilitate it or have computers, for example. Or, and, for example, I was studying domestic violence in a prison where most women have been, you know, a victim of domestic violence, and I went to look in the library for a book about domestic violence and there wasn't one. Oh, my goodness. Yep. So that's what we're dealing with yeah what is in the library well I was a librarian for a while <laughs> <laughs> what a great gig <laughs> yes 
Um, and so there's lots of like <clears throat> Leanne variety and all the like all the fiction. Yeah, right, so um, fiction. but nonfiction is like books that are 30 years years old about like Rome, Italy, the the covers are falling off. There's nothing up to date. Yeah. Why do you think there's not material relevant to domestic violence in the library? I think there's a disconnect between reality and what policymakers think is important. You know, I would have thought that would be frontline um, education and mandatory in all prisons to know what your rights are and, you know, the background of domestic violence and then you're not alone. And it was assumed that it happens, especially, you know, in the cohort that I was talking to. It was kind of like, of course, yeah, I've been belted. Like, you know, like, I just I just was like, how, where do you get, yeah, we need someone, a body, I guess, to stand up in, and protect us because we can't protect ourselves and we're assuming mm. that it's the norm and it's not, the message isn't getting through that it's not okay. Mm. Is there, you've talked about there being like an acceptance that domestic violence happens mm. by the women you're incarcerated with is there much other knowledge about domestic violence no i think it's part of life for for that cohort and no yeah there's not like the me too movement hasn't hit the prisons (laughs) (laughs) shocking yeah and um it's very um controlled what information comes into the prisons and if you can be empowered and so forth. And it very much depends on who's the superintendent at the time. So I was lucky when I would move prisons that there was a superintendent who was very pro me studying and he even let me go with a guard to a conference, which was the ANSOC conference, which was absolutely mind-blowing and fantastic. So, yeah. Hang on a minute. How's it showing up to an academic conference with a guard in tow? Yeah, I know. Well, it was very discreet because this superintendent was all about um, reintegration and um, having a toolkit to survive in life and not come back. And he even went to the conference as well. Awesome. Yep. And I was even asked to speak there for a little bit and I asked him if it was okay with him and he said absolutely. So he's very he was very much about empowering women to move on and so that was really excellent. But the guard actually, I was in a low um, security prison, so the guard just wore city's civilian clothes and just sat next to me. And I don't think anyone would have been the wiser if I hadn't spoken. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Super glad you didn't decide to do a runner, but gosh, that would have been amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what's her name in Queensland? Debbie? Kilroy. Debbie, she was there. And yeah. um, there happened to be another girl there that I'd, I'd been incarcerated with who was doing some voluntary work. Awesome. And she was talking to Debbie and introduced me to Debbie. And Debbie was having a um, talk, I guess, and she yeah. just said, come on, come and talk. And, yeah, and that's how that happened. So she was. it was really good to see how she, because you feel a little bit ostracised when mm. you've been incarcerated and you feel, yeah, so it was really nice to see someone who's doing really well and, yeah, so it was good. I mean, Sisters Inside is such an important organisation and does such incredible work. Did you know about Sisters Inside before you met Debbie Kilroy? No, no. I thought, no, but since I've Googled it and looked it up and it's exactly what you need, like it's amazing, just support and encouragement. 
Yeah. Someone strong to help you get your voice back. They also do all the, they like, they do some incredible work around raising money to get women who are in jail on fines, which is absurd, out of jail and supporting women for this recognition that gendered violence is just a part of life for women that, and women full stop, but that end up incarcerated. Yes. Awesome. Tell me about the practicalities of studying while incarcerated. Oh, I really believe that if it wasn't that I had a really supportive family and friends, I wouldn't have been successful finishing my grad cert. Even finding QUT was a, it wasn't in the, they were not going to do that for me. Find somewhere that would work with incarcerated students. So. If I didn't have someone to do that legwork on the outside for me, it wouldn't have happened. Basically, I would went in there to look at what uni courses were on offer and the books that were on the on the stand were like two, three years old. So you just you just can't do it on your own. It's impossible. So once I said, Oh, I found this course and this lady who said that she would help us and she can do I can do it online. <clears throat> there was a lady that said to me, No, that's impossible. They won't work with incarcerated people. And I said, Yes, she, they will. So just to get her to email I said can you please email her just to confirm what I'm telling because I don't believe anything incarcerated people say either so everything you say has to be validated by an email or or someone to support you so finally she emailed QT and they said that's correct the information that you're getting is correct we're happy to work with Michelle so just to get to that point was a battle and then I asked if I could have recordings of all the lectures and I was told that's what you get for being incarcerated. You can't listen to any recordings because they don't record lectures. And, and I said, oh, can you please ask, because it's really easy just to press record mm. if they would do, you know, specifically given that I'm incarcerated because I'm not going to be able to be there at 5 p.m., if, you know, whatever the time was. And um, then she emailed, I think it was yourself possibly, and um, you said, no, we record all our sessions. Yeah. So that lack of information and just knowledge, like it was just pushing, 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 pushing the whole way and knowing that what my friends were telling me was you can do this, you are allowed to do this and informing them that please can you just send that email and find out. So that's an incredibly high level of motivation that you have to have. Yeah, yeah. And just to get an appointment with the education staff is a big process in itself. You have to write a written request and yeah, and call them to call you up and it can't, you can't be in lockdown. And yeah, it's a big rigmarole. And if you're unsure of yourself and which you are and you don't have support, I would say it's impossible. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that I, like I'm hearing you say, is that it's incredibly difficult and there's barriers, but one of the barriers is for staff a lack of knowledge about what is available and under resourcing to be able to provide those services absolutely absolutely yeah the pivotal question for me then is how can we do that better well I think as well they've got all these markers they have to meet and everyone has to have basic hygiene classes and things like that so that's where their bulk of their time is being spent Mm. and basic hygiene classes is really for two-year-olds four-year-olds it's it's so basic it's ridiculous but it's just ticking that box so that's where all their time's going instead of giving us practical skills and yeah like certificates TAFE certificates whatever it may be yeah that's what we're doing yeah so tell me 
you wake up in the morning and you're like, I might get some uni work done today. Yeah. What does that look like? Okay, so if you're not in lockdown, and lockdown happens if they're understaffed or they've had staff calling sick. And so if you're in lockdown, you're in your cell the whole day apart from a couple of hours, so you don't get to go to education. Um, if you do go to education, I would go in immediately and harass <laughs> is pretty much the word. Um, I would ask, please, can you play, have you down, have you, because we're not allowed to use internet, have you um, downloaded the lectures so I can listen to them, please? Because I can only use the computer during those two hours in the morning when we were in ed- education. So that was a priority of mine. And I tried to also print off as much of the articles as I could so I could take them back to my cell and read them when we were in lockdown. So, so that's what I'd do. I'd say, please, can you have you downloaded it? And more often than not, they hadn't. So they would do that in front of me. And then I would get to the computer and just like binge lectures because I didn't have access to a computer in my cell. So that's what I would do. And then after two hours or two and a half hours, then you have to go back to your cell and have, they call it lunch. So all the staff can, so all the prisoners are locked in so the staff can have their lunch break. And then I think it's at 1.30 until 3.30, you get another opportunity to go back. So how do you, if you don't have access to the internet, how do you get articles to do your research? Exactly. So that's another thing. I would ask my family to print off a lot of articles and send them in as well. I'd ask, tell them what to Google and what years and whatnot. And they would come in and give me hard copies. And that would have to go to security because you're only allowed certain materials and you're not allowed. And I've given it was violence as well, domestic violence. Like some of it came through, some didn't. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, studying Claire Ferguson's unit, um, lethal risk, yeah. that was tricky. So, why was it tricky? Because they, in there, for example, we're not allowed um, any DVDs more than mature. We're only allowed to watch M-rated movies and it's like we ignore the fact that there's drug addiction, domestic violence, all of this. So it's just like this little, like, I don't know, we're putting this little fishbowl of happiness and protection that we're not, protected yeah so we're not allowed to see anything nasty i'm sorry um, i've never thought of prisons as a fishbowl of happiness and protection no but we're all we're not allowed to see anything nasty we're not allowed to you know so so even though it's academic material it's not like you're getting a graphic novel no uh no. it's academic research that you're not able to have access to dependent on the guard Yes, absolutely. Yep. And if the guard is um, wanting you to be educated, then you're more likely to. So I would I would tell my family when there was a, a guard on that I knew wanted is pro-education for prisoners. Otherwise, you wouldn't get your, your material. That's an amazing level of knowledge to have to have of how a system is working and who's where and when. Yep. And even the um, education staff, like there's a big part of turnover and there was one point when I was able to access articles and get them on online through um, one of the education staff and then that staff member left and another a guy came on and he was all about, he said, I should never have been allowed to study what I was studying. Then suddenly I had no access to any articles and I think you were thinking, what's going on? Because... <laughs> But, I, you know, so suddenly, my, yeah, 
everything just got switched off. So it very much depends on their attitude as well. I mean, I do remember the great variance in who you're dealing with and working with some staff who were so great and wanted to get everything that I could possibly send into you. Yes. And then there'd just be, and without any really notice, this vacuum of being able to even have a phone call with you or get in contact with you or being able to get materials to you. Absolutely. And, you know, from from this end, I also don't know what's going on. No. I don't know what's happening. I don't know, like. (laughs) I know. You'd probably think that suddenly I wasn't interested or, you know, yeah, so that's horrible when you're trying to do your best and you're being blocked and, you know, even what you wrote in an email, like if you asked the education officer to write an email, they wrote what they wanted to write. They didn't, you know, you don't know what's been really forwarded on. They're not going to say that they aren't supporting you. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're really, you're probably not going to say that, are you? No, no. Um, Is there a way that you can see to balance the security needs of prisons with easier access even to databases or...? Yeah. I would often say that to some of the the staff, like if if we just, you know, how you can have like parent controls, Mm. you know, just even if they put in really tight controls so you are only looking at academic databases or whatever it is you're looking at, libraries, things like that. That would just be amazing, amazing, because that was the hardest part is getting the materials, you know. in the When I was in the minimum security prison, it was like a, it was fantastic because I just suddenly could stay in the education department until 10 o'clock at night. So suddenly I felt like I could have the time I wasn't racing against the clock but if you just could have access to offline you know it would be amazing but they didn't like they had wikipedia at one point and then they took that off which is hilarious because the first thing we tell students is wikipedia may be a place to start your research but it is not a reliable academic source okay okay (laughs) note to self yes Um, so how do you physically write an essay your assignment's due how do you get I would say pen on paper is that it it's pen on paper like I was told that um, I needed to write it out in pen when I was in the maximum security prison and then luckily for me I was transferred to minimum minimum security so I could write as well just on the offline computer which was fantastic so a lot of mine was hard copies from my family so that's how I wrote my assignments yeah so when you say hard copies from your family, what does that mean? Uh, hard copy articles from my family. Okay. Yeah. And then you got access to a computer to type it up? Yes. Yep. How do yep. you learn even things like the different referencing style that we require? That's, yeah, exactly. That I had to ask one of the staff to print that out for me. So I had a hard copy of that. But at first they gave me APA. So that was <laughs> a couple of weeks turn around trying to get the right one but um they were fantastic when they there was a few staff that were absolutely amazing and they were really championing yeah going in that so I'm not saying that they all weren't helpful but they're also bound by the the rules of the prison Mm. so 
yeah and like for example I I would always spend my time in education because I felt safe there for starters Mm -hmm. and I was trying to do my studies but then other inmates then thought we were getting special privilege to go into education so then they cut the hours of education being open hang on if I'm to understand you correctly anyone could access education at any point or if you were doing a course you could come in and do anyone could come and do a course yeah but if you couldn't just come you had to have a swipe card that would okay. let you come in if you were doing a course right yeah. but then people thought that you were getting extra stuff and so they cut your access to education yes that's frustrating yes so because that's when i would the education was open until three and then and of course the whole education department is it's in prison everything's you what's the word you're you've got so much you're overstimulated there's so much stimuli in there you just yeah and so when you'd be in education you would be there would be always people and um always watching what's going on and so I would actually find when education most people from education went home after three o'clock that's when I'd get my work done so I'll yeah so when they cut that back to three that's that really impacted on my amount of work that I could get done what made you decide to go on to do a master's I know (laughs) (laughs) I know I mean super glad that you did oh but what motivated you I really, really enjoyed my grad cert and I thought, and looking at what was out there, the information that's out there and then massive disconnect to what reality is, especially with the women that I was talking to, I wanted to go on and also wanted to see what the family law courts were doing because I'd heard some horrible stories as well from the other ladies and I had a, like a real hunger for information and I just wanted to explore that. I didn't realise how big of a task I took on. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it and I'm coming to the end now, but I'm finding that it's like the marathon that you're running mm. and I've just got to get to that finish line now. But it's really opened my eyes and I like that I like that I'm learning new things and it, unfortunately for me it's kind of like taking off the rose-coloured glasses that we're systems are working well and the assumption that we're all protected and safe. And so that's, that's the downside, I suppose. Oh, maybe it's the positive. The upside. I'm now realizing where what society we have and and that and I want to somehow make a change. Be I don't know impactful or help someone in the future um, not go through what I went through or even any one of the women that I spoke to with injustice and so forth and their children as second. They're always being thought of as a second thought, not a priority. So I thought that this would give me um, a better insight and to see what exactly is going, how the cogs are turning and what, what is actually happening behind, the, behind closed doors. What's been the biggest difference, I guess, in studying outside of prison as opposed to studying inside? The internet. Oh, my God. I, w- I was just like a kid in Candyland. It was so amazing, like just going on the QUT website was so exciting and looking at all the different resources and it was it, it was a little bit overwhelming at one point because like before I'd had this like stack of um, articles I'd go through and then suddenly it multiplied by a million and it was, yeah, so then I found that I was just going down wormholes and reading everything 
So that I did waste a lot of time in, in some respects, reading, reading, reading things that I probably didn't need to read. But at the same time, I was like, happy as Larry. So I think that was the biggest thing. And just having everything at your fingertips. Printing, didn't have to wait for somebody to allocate printing. It was absolutely brilliant. And just time, could organise my own time schedule. I knew if I have um, a deadline, I could just jump on the computer. I didn't have to worry about what other people were doing. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. But the downside is that I have to motivate myself. (laughs) Which seems quite remarkable to me because the way that you have been motivated to have to fight to even get access to resources, I would say has a much higher level of motivation than is necessary outside. Yes. What do you think is the difference there? I think that... um, I think that because I've been running this marathon, I think I'm just exhausted. Yeah. So I think finally, now that I'm at the end of parole, all this stress is like finally leaving my body and my mind always worried about everything. So I think that I think that I've been running so fast for so long that I've just run out of gas. Mm. Yeah. And I, I need to be feel like, yeah, be motivated to and inspired to finish. But I will finish. But I, as you know, I'm, uh, yeah, <laughs> I've been dragging my feet a little bit lately. I sit at the desk ready to go and then I just kind of like, right, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's cool because you've like had so much trauma associated with studying and there is so much for you to process just in your daily life to then sit down and think, okay, I have to think about how the family law court is screwing up children's lives. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Right I there. Think, I think a bit of, um, is it vicarious trauma? Yeah, totally vicarious uh, trauma. Yeah, from what I'm reading as well, because in prison, as I said, you're overstimulated, so you get a little bit numb. Mm. So you're reading things and you, you, you're shocked. At, you're always shocked at what you're reading, but it's kind of like it's a little bit distanced, whereas at home you're suddenly back in your real life. And you're suddenly realising that this is happening all the time and you're suddenly, I don't know, it's me, it's more meaningful because you're not so numb. Mm. So, and you and, and more frustrated, I think, because you're like, what's just happened? And how did this happen? And when I look at every a lot of the other women, it's happening to them as well. And it, how can this be so when the myth, the community's myth out there, the big myth out there is that, our women and children are being cared for. Yeah. And we've got a good system in place. But then when you scratch the surface, you see that, no, actually a lot of people know that we don't. Yeah. A lot of the decision makers know that it's a flawed system. So that blows me away. And, I, I'm yeah, I think that's where I've grown and evolved because when I hear people say, oh, that would never happen. I, I, I just think they're obviously not informed mm. and not doesn't sound like they would, yeah, yeah. This is, this is the real world. Yeah. Is it like transitioning out of prison as a educated, intelligent, articulate woman? What's it like returning to the community? I, it's really strange because I actually, I, was, I started on day releases and I couldn't get back to prison fast enough. Yeah, right. Um, it was bizarre. I felt safe there for some, like 
safer in there than in the community, which was really odd. And sometimes we'd read, there'd be, um, you live in little houses when you're in minimum security and you'd be sitting watching the news with other girls and we'd be like, oh, my God, thank God we're not out. Like, you know, <laughs> thank God we're not out there. Like, you know, <laughs> which is crazy because you do actually feel safe in there because you've got 24-hour security. You know no guy's going to come bursting in on you in your house. Yeah. Which is so interesting given that you have talked so much about scanning for what's going on around you and yeah. the constant surveillance and the feeling of dis-ease. Yes. Well, so you were incarcerated during COVID. How was that? Yeah, that was really difficult because they, they stopped all the visits so you didn't have any access to your family or friends coming in. So that was really hard because that's what I used to live for mm. is visits on the weekend. And they also stopped, yeah, they stopped your home visits as well. So I was reintegrating home. And suddenly you were just locked down a lot. They didn't want you going from house to house. So very isolating. So you're isolated, isolating within an isolated community. And there was lots of different rules coming out, which were being, were changing every week, which is I suppose similar to what was happening on the outside. But mm. a lot of things weren't really making sense. But, yeah, there was a lot of changes and, yeah, it was, it was difficult. It was, a, and we were always told that it's what the community sensed. It was all about what the community um, thought about what was happening in prisons. That's what the mm. decision making was based on. Do you think that there was a genuine idea of what was happening in prison? No. 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 I think I think the community think that everybody in prison deserves to be in prison, which may be may be absolutely right. Um, and also not, and I think they want us, us to have bread and water. But at the end of the day, you come out of prison and you don't want people coming out of prison angry mm-hmm. and and exactly how they came into prison. So we need to spend the time, I think, on educating and like teaching life skills. So then when you do come out, you are better equipped to not go back to your own old life which might not have been the healthiest way to live. What do you say to people who argue that prisoners have it too good and people in nursing homes have it worse than people who are in prison and it's an easy run Mm -hmm. being locked up? Clearly they haven't been in prison. (laughs) (laughs) That's just an easy throwaway comment for people to say. I think that prisons spend an enormous amount of money on prisoners but I don't see where the money's going because it doesn't seem it, anything meaningful that would change the trajectory for their future. That's where the money stops. So I, I think that the community want to think that prisoners are being punished, but being in prison is the punishment. Mm. You know, so if you want people to come out and then lead a better life or make better decisions, then we need to upskill people and give them hope and not just throw them back on the street with the same skills they came in with because if I'm going to be homeless or deal drugs I would you can see how people would make the decisions they're making Mm. you know and they've got to feed their children and so forth Um, because it literally is decisions like that Mm. and also I was hearing the amount of money people are making on drugs is absolutely astonishing 
So, and I think prison's not a good place if you don't want to better yourself or come out and make better decisions because you just meet people who are like-minded who, you know, give you contacts. Um, really, it's, it's like... That's the oldest argument against, uh, I think it was Bentham that said that prisons are the universities of crime. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The things that my eyes nearly popped out of my head, <laughs> like, you know, like just yeah how you can make money and scams and unbelievable what people think of what do you think the biggest myths about women's prisons is that it's people that are criminal and dangerous we're all people so one day you're in prison and the next day you're not that doesn't mean that I'm a different person so for example when you're in prison you're treated as stupid dangerous untrustworthy not yet not believed yeah so I think I think that people think that women that are in prison aren't women from our community whereas I was there and there was a few people there that I actually knew from my outside life which um and family was which you would never have known that they had been in prison or were going to yeah and it's just you just don't know the people you're talking to, what's mm. happened in their life if they've been to prison. I think that's what we need to think of is women who have been in prison are just women who've had that life experience. They're not any different to other people who haven't been in prison. Mm. Is there a concept or a piece of theory or a quote in things that you have read for your research that has stuck with you? It, this sticks with me, um, just the line in um, the Family Law Re- Legislation, the Family Law Act, for the children's best interest. And I just think that phrase is disgraceful because nothing about it's so it's so subjective. I, I just think that the children's best interest is not, it's, it's a farce. Every time I read it, it makes I feel my stomach go because it's not what's happening and in the children's best interest. And then everyone finishes their spiel and then said in the children's best interest. And I just think we need a better phrase, a more specific phrase, which actually can give it value and quantify what that actually means. I mean, the interesting thing about in the child's best interest is it actually comes from human rights legislation actually comes from conventions about the rights of the child but it is interpreted in child protection and in the family law court to I would say varying standards to, oh, absolutely. in complex ways so it's a concept that should mean the protection and nurture and prioritizing of children's needs and safety but the application of that is registered through a, I'm going to say adult white male gaze. That's it. That's, you've nailed it. Absolutely. And that's, <laughs> that's the problem. If you had a platform, what do you want to tell people? Um, I want to tell people, don't be so narrow-minded. Open your eyes about what's happening around you. If there's something that doesn't seem right, scratch the surface. Mm. and be educated to what's happening because 
I think strength in numbers. And if everybody got on board and just said, hey, enough, this isn't, even one child isn't being looked after. If we all reacted as a community, we wouldn't have this problem mm. at all. And the decision makers, they all want votes. They all want to hold their jobs. And if the whole community said this isn't good enough for this child, there'd be changes immediately, I believe. Mm. Yeah, so we need support. We need everybody to stand up and speak. And, you know, when somebody sees there's injustice and um, stays silent, that is actually choosing injustice. Mm. So I think we need to um, be brave and speak up and don't laugh at jokes or things like that. Um, Actually stand up and say, that doesn't sit well with me. What's actually going on there, Mm. you know, and do some research yourself as well. I love that. Michelle, I have so much respect for how hard you have worked and the passion that you have carried throughout our work together. And I really am appreciative of having your student and having your voice here. Thanks so much for being on How Do Academia. Oh, thanks for having me. I loved it. Thank you. Thanks, Joey. You are so welcome. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>